David Lynch's Blue Velvet was released 30 years ago, reaction was deeply divided. Here are Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel debating it on their TV show in September 1986. Either this material is funny, in which case you don't take advantage of your stars, or it isn't funny, in which case it shouldn't have so much campy and adolescent dialogue along with the really powerful sexual scenes. Sure, the movie's well made, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. I think what's exciting about the film, and it is challenging, is it starts out with flowers and sunlight and it's a happy little town, and then we dig deeper and we find out, oh my God, we're really getting in over our heads. And he's a director, mm -hmm. and he wants to play you like all the directors, the great directors want to do, he wants to play you like a piano, which is have you smile and then swing you right into the, some depression. Yeah, well, the next I think time he, I think he got he wants to play me like a piano, he'd better get some music that's worth listening to. In favor of the film was Janet Maslin, who wrote in the New York Times, there's no mistaking the exhilarating fact that it's one of a kind. In Time magazine, Richard Corliss wrote, Lynch and his film will surely be reviled, but as an experiment in expanding cinema's dramatic and technical vocabulary, Blue Velvet demands respect. So which is it? Reviled or respected? I've said it before, but why the either or? Why can't it be both? As F. Scott Fitzgerald said, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. I'm quoting Fitzgerald specifically because he used the word mind and when it comes to discussing the cinema of David Lynch, that's where most of his films take place. In fact, Lynch named his first feature film a Razorhead. And since then, he has spent a lot of his cinema delving into the subconscious. Here is David Lynch talking about how he gets his ideas. Ideas come to us. We don't um, really create an idea. We just catch them like fish. Um, no chef ever takes credit uh, for making the fish. It's just preparing the fish. So you get an idea and it explodes like uh, it's got electricity and light connected to it and it has all the images and the feeling and it's like in an instant you know the idea and if you're true to it when the work is finished and some years go by you can even get more out of it if you've been true to the idea in the first place on the surface blue velvet's plot concerns a young man jeffrey beaumont played by kyle mclachlan who finds a human ear in a vacant lot and through his own investigations discovers that a man, Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper, is so obsessed with a woman, Dorothy Valance, played by Isabella Rossellini, that he has kidnapped her husband, cut off his ear, and threatened the life of her child, all because he wants Dorothy to submit as his sexual slave. While that summary makes it sound bizarre, if we were to omit the perversion, we could just as easily be summarising a thriller or dark melodrama. Or both. But whatever Blue Velvet is, as you watch, it comes at you in ways that are at times startlingly strange, yet eerily familiar. Magnetic, but repulsive. Frightening, and also comedic. In a word, surreal. So let us reconsider that plot from a surreal perspective. It is about a highly dysfunctional family. The father is an unbridled psychomaniac, and the mother is most dreadfully abused. And seeing what daddy is doing to mummy, the son intervenes to save her, only he does so by sleeping with her and then killing daddy. Described like that, you can see a very strong Oedipal, well, 
I can't call it subtext, because in Blue Velvet, the subconscious has erupted into the waking world, and what you see has the logic of an irrational dream. Lynch began his career as a painter, and here he is explaining his method of framing, as well as dramatic structure. There's many things that you, you know, you do, one does intuitively uh, to move the eye, you know, uh, there's repetition of shape, repetition of color, but when you start looking at a duck, um, you see your eye is moving in a certain way. And you see textures and colors and shapes, and you start wondering about a duck. Uh, what it can teach us about, you know, any kind of abstract, you know, painting or proportions or even sequences, um, scenes. And it always is interesting that the eye is in the perfect place. If you move it to the body, it would get lost. If you move it to the leg or the beak, it's two kind of fast areas competing, even though the eye is the fastest, it's the little jewel. Surrealism is not supposed to make any sense, but Blue Velvet operates by its own very strict internal logic. Take this scene where Frank asks his friend and fellow sociopath Ben, played by Dean Stockwell, to mime along to this song by Roy Orbison. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep Everything is alright Interestingly, this song was not Lynch's first choice. He wanted another Roy Orbison number. Fittingly, some 15 years later, Lynch was able to use it in Spanish for Mulholland Drive. There are many ways you can use pop music in cinema, and filmmakers such as Martin Scorsese, Wes Anderson and Quentin Tarantino are leading practitioners. Lynch is on a par with them, but for me, there is one moment that sets him apart from them. The way Lynch used, or some would say abused, Roy Orbison's song stands as one of the most audacious reimaginings of any song in any movie anywhere. To my mind, the only one that compares is this. The reason Lynch's use of the song works perfectly is because it turns the song against itself, and so gets it to function in a way that is completely unexpected. There is a verse in the song where Orbison sings But before Ben mimes that part, Frank grows upset and turns off the cassette player. Frank knows that he can only exist in dreams, and he knows he has to keep you in a dream in order to control you. She The impact Blue Velvet has had on American cinema is legion. Look no further than American Beauty or Pleasantville, 
and on television, Desperate Housewives and The Killing. But interesting as those four titles may be, they really only flirt with suburban shadows. Blue Velvet lures you into those dark recesses, and while you're visiting, it shows you the darkness that lurks within the darkness. By exploring suburbia, it navigates a dystopia, and so strong is its attraction that you are almost magnetised by the perversions on display. You find it hard to look away, but more than wanting to watch, you want to watch it all over again. But enough about the influence Blue Velvet has had. What influenced Blue Velvet? Well, for one, you have Un Chien Andalou, the surrealist shocker from 1930, where Louise Bunuel collaborated with Salvador Dali, in which an amputated human hand is found in a box on the street. For another, there is Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 thriller Rear Window, where L.B. Jeffries, played by Jimmy Stewart, is laid up for six weeks with a broken leg and because of boredom, resorts to spying on his neighbours. Doesn't seem to be in any hurry. Uh, he's been laying out all his things on one of the beds. Shirts, suits, coats, socks. Even his wife's, uh, that alligator handbag. What wife, about uh, The bedpost. Well, he, he had it hidden in the dresser. At least it was there. Uh, he took it out, went to the telephone, made a long-distance call. He had his wife's jewellery in the handbag. I've already done a podcast on that picture, and you may want to give it a listen because I contend that Rear Window itself hints at the power of dreams. Another possible influence will be another Hitchcock film, Shadow of a Doubt, a thriller set in the American Midwest, where Teresa Wright plays young Charlie Newton, whose boredom is brightened by the sudden arrival of her uncle, also named Charlie, played by Joseph Cotton. But then young Charlie's mood darkens when she comes to suspect that Uncle Charlie may be a serial killer. I wish I'd told my mother about you. I wish I had. Oh, I know what you've been thinking. How do you think your mother would have felt? What would it do to her now? How about your father's job at the bank? What would become of all of you if everything came out? I know. You needn't be afraid. I can't tell them. But I'm not afraid, Charlie. What would you tell? Who would believe you? A third example just might be Robert Altrich's superb adaptation of Mickey Spillane's Kiss Me Deadly. There, private investigator Mike Hammer not only finds himself way in over his head, but also a helpless witness to the sadistic torture and murder of a woman. She's passed out. I'll bring her to. If you revive her, do you know what that will be? Resurrection. That's what it will be. And do you know what resurrection means? It means raise the dead. And just who do you think you are that you think you can raise the dead? Released in 1955, Kiss Me Deadly came late in the noir cycle. And the mannered lighting of the noir look can be seen in Blue Velvet. But that is not to say that Lynch was offering up a pastiche or a parody, as some people have claimed. Instead, what Lynch did was take the noir idiom and give it what its pure form denied. Colour. More than just colour, Lynch and his director of photography Frederick Elms 
gave it a saturated, lurid look. From the opening sequence, where we see the sunny sky, the picket fences, the roses, the blues and reds are vibrant. But also a bit too vibrant, because those same colours become the heavy shades of Dorothy's makeup. Her lips are ruby and her eyeshadow is cobalt. And once we get indoors to her apartment, those shades are remixed to plum, or rather the shade of a bruise. Which should end any discussion about whether Blue Velvet is a parody of film noir. To begin with, noir was not a genre, but a style, an idiom, and part of its vernacular was the notion of the femme fatale. Dorothy Valance is anything but a femme fatale. At the risk of stating the obvious, a femme fatale lures a man to his death. Dorothy Valance does no such thing. In fact, Along with Evelyn Mulray in Roman Polanski's Chinatown, Valance is one of the most tormented and troubled women ever seen in American cinema. While Blue Velvet may have divided opinion when it was released in 1986, by the end of that decade, views had begun to coalesce. So much so that some 30 years later, Blue Velvet is not only regarded as Lynch's masterpiece, its status as an American masterpiece is beyond question. <laughs>